Would you turn in your Bibles to Acts chapter 13? We're going to be reading Acts chapter 13, verses 1 through 17. That's what we'll be reading this morning. Acts chapter 13, verses 1 through 17. Uh, now, as we spend time in, this wor- in the Word, let's, let's uh, ask God's blessing on this. Our Father in heaven, make your name holy in this time and in this place. O Holy Spirit, give us ears to hear and hearts to believe. O Jesus, speak, Lord, for your servants are listening. Now there were in the church at Antioch prophets and teachers, Barnabas, Simeon, who was called Niger, Lucius of Cyrene, Menaean, a lifelong friend of Herod the Tetrarch, and Saul. While they were worshiping the Lord and fasting, the Holy Spirit said, Set apart for me Barnabas and Saul for the work to which I have called them. Then after fasting and praying, they laid their hands on them and sent them off. So being sent out by the Holy Spirit, they went down to Seleucia, and from there they sailed to Cyprus. When they arrived at Salamis, they proclaimed the word of God in the synagogues of the Jews, and they had John to assist them. When they had gone through the whole island, as far as Paphos, they came upon a certain magician, a Jewish false prophet named Bar-Jesus. He was with the proconsul Sergius Paulus, a man of intelligence, who summoned Barnabas and Saul and sought to hear the word of God. But Elimus, the magician, for that is the meaning of his name, opposed them, seeking to turn the proconsul away from the faith. But Saul, who was also called Paul, filled with the Holy Spirit, looked intently at him and said, You son of the devil, you enemy of all righteousness, full of all deceit and villainy, will you not stop making crooked the straight paths of the Lord? And now, behold, the hand of the Lord is upon you, and you will be blind and unable to see the sun for a time. Immediately the mist and darkness fell upon him, and he went about seeking people to lead him by the hand. Then the proconsul believed when he saw what had had occurred, for he was astonished at the teaching of the Lord. Let's pray. Father, I thank you for this word, and I pray that you would sink it deep into our hearts and give me words and clarity in us all hearts to embrace your truth. And we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. So I think the church at Antioch here that we're reading about, they, their example calls us to elevate our devotion. Calling us to something greater and deeper and bigger than where we currently are or are currently comfortable with. This story, it points us to, uh, their example, it points us to fasting and prayer and mission. And the two things that these have in common in this church are a devotion to God's will above their own and an empowering of the Holy Spirit. Devotion to God's will above our own and an empowering of the Holy Spirit. If these two things don't mark our church, then we will end up being like those people who use the name of Jesus without following the person of Jesus. There's a haunting story about that 
in, in, later in Acts, and that's always stuck with me, in, in Acts chapter 19, Paul comes to Ephesus and he speaks boldly there, reasoning and persuading people about the kingdom of God for two whole years to the point where Luke says Resi- all the residents of Asia heard the word of the Lord. And during that time, God was doing some really incredible and amazing things through Paul, like to the point where people would even be healed and evil spirits would be cast out through garments that he had touched. And there were these seven brothers who saw what was going on. They were itinerant Jewish exorcists, and they were called the sons of Sceva. They were, they were the sons of Sceva. And they were in the business, see, of casting out demons. And they see what Paul is doing and how, how well it's working for their business, and so they decide they want in on that. And they try to use the name of Jesus to cast out a demon. And they say, I adjure you by the Jesus who Paul proclaims. But the evil spirit says to them, Jesus I know, and Paul I recognize, but who are you? And then he beats them to a bloody pulp, and they run away all naked and afraid. See, they saw the name of Jesus grow in popularity, and they wanted in on it. They wanted in on that action. They they were saying, whether or not I know Jesus, I've seen it work. It's pragmatism. And they were using the name of Jesus without following the person of Jesus. But Paul, he was so different, wasn't he? He was completely sold out. He went from being someone who was persecuting the church to someone who was encouraging and equipping the church. And he is doing it regardless of the cost. He doesn't care about fame or fortune or the consequences or anything but Jesus. He was so invested and devoted to God's will above his own. He was walking in step with the Spirit. And that is living in Jesus' name. That's why the demons knew Paul. But they didn't know these opportunistic Jesus users. And I have a feeling that Jesus would say the same thing to them that the demon did. I never knew you. Because the two things that marked Paul and the Antioch church that we read about were devotion to God's will above their own and an empowering of the Holy Spirit. But the sons of Sceva, they were were pursuing their own will and agenda, not God's. And they weren't empowered by the Holy Spirit. I tell that story because there is a profound sense of danger for those of us who are just using the name of Jesus to advance our own agendas and ideas and desires. And I, 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 don't, I just I want to warn you, because I love you so much, I don't want you to live a sham and end up beaten to a bloody pulp like the sons of Sceva. Instead, I want us to be a church like the church in Antioch, A church that is devoted to the will of God above our own. And a church that is empowered by the life-giving Holy Spirit. And we see that devotion and that moving of the Spirit among this church in Antioch through their fasting and prayers and dedication to the mission of God. Those are the three main things that we're going to spend our time looking at this morning. So first, as we think about fasting in light of this story, it's important to know that, of course, fasting like anything else can be an empty ritual that's untethered to the person it's intended to be tied to. But with this and with all spiritual disciplines, I think a better way to think about them is as relational practices. 
It's a practice of our relationship to God. If you talk to any like, great couple that you know and respect, you know, a relationship that's really unified and close, you'll discover that they have certain habits and practices of togetherness. Even in my own life, Audrey and I, we've developed a rate of relational practice of walking together for about an hour almost every day. And there is, the walking itself is not the important part so much as, as the relationship that it cultivates. It's a simple practice, it communicates certain things, and it's developed much greater intimacy in our relationship. This is how we should think about the historic spiritual disciplines. Like, we could call that walking a physical discipline, technically, but that undercuts the value and the significance of it. And the same with spiritual disciplines. Sure, they're spiritual disciplines, but they're relational practices with God. And that's how we should think about fasting. And Jesus, when he taught us about fasting, when when he was fasting, he taught us that humans don't live by bread alone, but by every word that comes from the mouth of God. I think in part, his fasting was a demonstration of his dependence on his father. Fasting, among other things, is a way of reminding us and declaring our frailty and our dependence, that we're not in ultimate control and we are utterly dependent upon God. Fasting, it embodies that idea. And it has been a regular habit of Christians throughout history. In fact, it's only really in, the, in American church in the past hundred years that we've kind of stopped doing it. And I think it's worth asking why. Why have we stopped? Why have we abandoned it? Because more important than, you know, the abandonment of the practice is the reasons why we've abandoned it. Even if you don't leave here and adopt the practice of fasting, you should recognize and address in your life the things that have led to its decline. And there's four reasons from what I can tell. One, we don't understand it because we skim over the parts of the Bible that we don't find important or weird. You ever like reading through, oh, that's weird, and then you just keep going? You know, we all do that. It's an unhealthy relationship to the Bible. Two, we've idolized food and comfort and convenience. We've elevated them to an unhealthy level in our lives. Three, there is a division that says spirituality doesn't affect what we do with our body. And four, we don't take our sin and repentance seriously. So let's address these things quickly. The Bible mentions fasting about 30 times, and and it's not usually how most people think of it, like we're, you know, kind of results-oriented, like I really want something to happen, so so I fast along with my prayers. Actually, some of the most significant fasts in the Bible are not seeking something, but responding to something or preparing for something. Responding to a great experience of God's presence and his leading, as well as preparing for where God is leading. Like Moses, who was the first person the Bible records fasting on the mountain where God's presence was, he he responds to that by not eating. And Jesus, whenever he's baptized, he he responds to that beautiful manifestation of God's anointing and presence there in that baptism by doing what? Going into the wilderness and fasting. And even in this text that we read in Acts 13, the Holy Spirit spoke to them and set apart Barnabas and Paul, and they respond how? Prayer and fasting. And another big category is responding to tragedy. In mourning, people fast in the Bible. And most of us think about these kind of things like, oh, I'd rather just pray about it, right? I mean, I don't want to give up. That seems inconvenient. But 
But that's because we have elevated convenience and food and comfort to unhealthy levels in our lives, I think. But it also, I think more importantly, it, it, it shows us that there's a division in how we think about my, that my spiritual life is about my thinking and my praying and the stuff I do with my body. That's not important. That's just bodily stuff. But that idea, that way of thinking is foreign to the Bible. In the Bible, our bodies and our souls are completely interwoven. Fasting in the Bible is an expression of trying to align or realign our whole self to God's will. And I think that we see this church in Antioch aligning themselves to God's will. The majority of fasting in the Bible is, is the majority of fasting in the Bible, if you read through those, those accounts, is actually realigning. Uh, it's, the, it, it's connected with repentance of sin. When God awakens people, to how messed up they are and opens our eyes to our sin, we go to him in repentance and mourning and asking for forgiveness and receiving forgiveness. And a part of this process is fasting, a kind of physical and spiritual rebooting or refocusing, but continual, ongoing confession and repentance of sin, it's not central to our Christianity anymore in a lot of our lives. Sin isn't taken seriously in our own lives. Even though we may take it seriously in other people's lives. You, you hear what I'm saying? Just because you take sin seriously when you see other people doing it does not mean you're taking it seriously enough in your own heart. And although though the truths about who Jesus is and what he has done, they're intended to humble us, in a weird ironic twist, we often use them to puff ourselves up. I was just talking with someone recently who was commenting on some Christians they know, and they said that they just seem to use Christianity to feel right. And they weren't, it wasn't a judgmental observation. This person was lamenting such a state because it's so sad, because Christianity should call us to see our wrongness and lead us to humility and repentance. Rather than just baptize our own agenda and stamp our will and desires with divine approval, it should draw our will and desires up into God's will and desires you know, of our Father, which are challenging and humbling and inspiring and loving. But too often, people are just using the name of Jesus without following the person of Jesus. And this is nowhere more obvious than in our prayer lives, where Many Christians just tack on in Jesus' name like it's some magical incantation that he won't hear your prayers if you don't say that, you know. But if the sons of Sceva taught us anything, it's that you can say in the name of Jesus all day long and you might just get the response, who are you? Because praying in someone's name is not just quoting their name. It's actually invoking their name and their reputation, their character and their position and saying, I've been entrusted with power and privilege to represent that person's name and agenda and desires. That's what it means. And we shouldn't take that lightly. And you know, the grand sweeping promises in the Bible, there are some amazing promises in the Bible about our prayers, but they have conditions. They're conditioned on devoting ourselves to God above ourselves. Like 1 John 5, which says that if we ask anything according to his will, he hears us. And Psalm 37, 4, delight yourself in the Lord and he will give you the desires of your heart. 
But we often, we often want to switch the order of that, don't we? Give me the desires of my heart and then maybe I'll delight in you. But honestly, then I probably won't need you very much. And you should ask yourself, do you pray like this? God, glorify Jesus through me, whatever it takes, whatever it costs. Or do you pray more like, God, glorify me and give me what I want. And if you have to use Jesus' name, then do that. Jesus is trying to move us to the former rather than the latter. And what Jesus says in John 15 is, if you abide in me and my words abide in you, ask whatever you wish and it will be done for you. He's saying if, when God's words and God's ways and God's will are at the very center of our life so that the things that spill out of our hearts and out of our mouths are utterly in line with his kingdom and his purposes and his mission of grace and love and becoming the people he has called us to be, well, then that makes for powerful, life-transforming, world-transforming prayers. But when we don't know if we're fully in line with his sovereign will, we ask not my will, but yours be done, just like our Lord. I don't want to keep anyone, you know, I'm not, I, he doesn't want to keep us from asking. I don't want to keep you from asking, even the things that are on your heart. I don't want to stop anyone from bringing their prayers to God. I don't care if they're, Lord, I really don't like Jay. Could you just like break his knee or something? Like if that's where you're at, bring it to God. That, that's fine. Just make sure you're submitting that to God's will above your own. Because in that process of being with him and sharing your desires with him, he, if you're open to him changing your desires, he will do that. But it's only in relationship that he does that. We should continually be bringing our desires to God, pursuing his heart and his power to conform our hearts to his. And as we do, we will see him transforming our desires. But there are many prayers in the Bible, prayers that we know that are perfectly in line with his will. And we can ask him to conform our hearts to his desires while we pray those prayers. You know, this church in Antioch, when they were worshiping and fasting and praying, we don't know all the prayers that they were praying. But I am almost certain that I know one prayer that they were praying. A prayer that Jesus himself gave, the, gave to his church. The prayer for God to send workers into the harvest. A metaphor for sending ministers of reconciliation into a broken and lost world. And why am I certain that they were praying that prayer? I'm certain they were praying that prayer because they, God answered to that prayer in this very story, didn't he? That prayer was powerfully answered when the Holy Spirit speaks and in, in and through their time of prayer and fasting, calling them to set apart Paul and Barnabas for the, to send them out for the work he was calling them to. This text, it marks the beginning of the first missionary journey, taking the gospel to the nations. Jesus told us that the reason he came was to seek and save the lost. And he is still doing that. He's still doing that in powerful and encouraging ways. This first century Jewish man that we call Lord, he was someone who consistently and intentionally broke through racial and cultural barriers. And he commanded his disciples to make disciples of all nations. That mission began with the apostles and it continues today. Christianity has always been the most multi-ethnic, multicultural movement in all of history. And we shouldn't you know, keep lamenting about the church being eroded. Instead, we should celebrate what God is doing through his glorious global church. Can I blow your minds for a minute? Here, here we go. 
this, this last, this, on Halloween, we celebrated the um, anniversary of the Protestant Reformation. 502 years ago, Martin Luther nailed his 95 theses, or he might have pasted them, to the church door and sparked a movement that changed the world and, and revived biblical Christianity. When he did that, when he did that, there were 450 million people on earth. 450 million people on earth. Today, there are over 900 million Protestant Christians on earth. That means there are over twice as many Protestants today as there were human beings when Martin Luther started the Protestant Reformation. Now that's encouraging. (laughs) Twice as many people today convert to Christianity every single day than did at Pentecost. Even in the hard places, this is happening. In Iran, for instance, the gospel has spread throughout the land in unprecedented fashion despite increased persecution of Christian believers. In 1979, there were about 500, only 500 known Christians from a Muslim background in Iran. Today, the average estimates of Christians from Iran range from 300,000 to upwards of a million. Operation World continues to list Iran as having the fastest growing evangelical church in the world. In fact, more Iranians have become Christians in the last 20 years than in the previous 1,300 years since Islam came, Islam came to Iran. Also in China, which is the global seat of, uh, center of atheism today, the church is suppressed there, but it is thriving in unexpected ways to the point that very soon there will be more Christians in China than there are in America. Maybe already even are. And if this trend continues, if it, if it continues... By 2060, it could be a majority Christian country. What's more is that the majority of the world's Christians, they live in in Africa and South America. Those who think the church is in decline, they have a limited and false perspective. I hope you're encouraged and stirred by what God is doing in the world. This mission is God's heartbeat, and it should be ours as we follow him. We should want to be a part of this because there is still, there is still, despite all the encouraging movement, there's still great urgent need for the spread of the gospel in our world. And God is calling his church to continue his mission. Pastor David Platt once gave a powerful sermon at the Southern Baptist Convention Pastors Conference, and he called us to risk it all for the glory of Christ and the mission that he's given us. He says this quote, For the glory of Christ among a billion people who have not even heard his name, let's risk it all. For the countless millions in your city and my city who do not know Christ and are headed to a Christless eternity, let's risk it all. Let's risk it all. For if we retreat from this mission, God is gracious. He will forgive us. He will forgive us. But brothers and sisters, he may just leave us to wander in the wilderness until we die. He has done it with thousands of churches in the United States. He could do it with any one of ours. Are we going to die in our religion or are we going to die in our devotion? That's such a good point. I I love that quote because God is doing this thing. He's going to glorify his name throughout the world. The question is, are we going to be a part of it? And the way I want to phrase it from this text this morning is, are we going to be like the church in Jerusalem? 
Are we going to be like the church in Antioch? Because do you remember how this church in Antioch was started? Christians were finally going out and doing what Jesus told them to do, taking the good news to Jerusalem, Judea, you know, Samaria, the ends of the earth. But why did they end up going? Persecution. They stayed put until they were forced to flee because of persecution. And God faithfully used that. He was faithful in that and used it to accomplish his purposes. But the, and the church in Antioch was started. Now contrast that with how the Antioch church sends their missionaries that we read about. They are so devoted to God's will and in step with God's spirit that they respond powerfully to his leading with intentionality and purpose. And they do a really hard thing. They send out their two best leaders. Now, God used both of these churches for his mission. One through distress and the other through devotion. One through persecution and providence and the other through passion and purpose. The question is, which one are we going to be? I want us to be like the church at Antioch. Their devotion to God led them to giving up their best leaders. So often we have a self-centered maintenance approach to ministry. Focusing on our success, on the success of our own church. Never praying for or partnering with other churches. And ministries within churches often think about only their success of their ministry rather than helping the other ministries. There. And small groups are often thinking only about maintaining their group and, rather than sending out leaders and multiplying it to reach more people. And individuals within the church are often thinking only about their spiritual success and growth rather than how they can invest and help others grow. But the church at Antioch had a radically different state of mind. Seeking the expansion of the kingdom even at great cost. They were giving themselves away. And this giving ourselves away is, is, for Jesus is the true path of flourishing. It's true what Jesus says that it's only through being willing to lose our life that we can truly live. It's true for individuals. It's true for churches. As David Platt put, are we going to choose retreat or risk? Maintenance or mission? disengagement or devotion because whatever we choose God will still make his glory known he doesn't need you he doesn't need me he doesn't need this church we could focus on ourselves and waste our lives and die and God will still make a great name for himself among the nations the question is do we want to be a part of it or better put, how do we want to be a part of it? Because God will use us for his glory one way or the other. A good example of this is Elimus, a.k.a. Bar-Jesus in this story. We see him, right? We, he's opposing the message of Paul. Sergius Paulus, this, guy, this proconsul guy, he was a person of peace. A person of peace is, some, is what we call a lost person who is welcoming Jesus' messengers into their life with openness. But Elimus, he's this, his, his name even sounds slimy, right? Elimus, he was this false prophet who, in Paul's words, was trying to make crooked the straight paths of the Lord. 
He's trying to turn the proconsul away from the faith. But verse 11, Paul says, Behold, the hand of the Lord is upon you, and you shall be blind and unable to see the sun for a time. And then verse 12 says, Then the proconsul believed when he saw what had occurred, for he was astonished at the teaching of the Lord. Do You see what God did there? God took the very effort of Elimus to make crooked the straight paths of God, to hinder Sergius Paulus' faith, and he took that in his hand and he used it to bring the governor to faith. Against Elimus' will and intentions, he was used by God to accomplish the very thing he was trying to hinder. C.S. Lewis once wrote that you will certainly carry out God's purposes however you act, but it makes a difference to you whether you choose to serve like Judas or John. I know who I want to be. And when we decide to do this, to be like Antioch, to be devoted to God's will above our own and make difficult decisions to advance the kingdom of God, We can have this great confidence that God is not defeated by these Bar-Jesus false prophet types and the Elimuses in our lives and in our paths. You will have those. You will have them. Trust me, as you walk in those straight paths of the Lord, there will be critics. There will be enemies. There will be those who try to make crooked the straight paths of the Lord. And there will be situations and hindrances and persecutions and Elimuses in your life. But God uses those as launching pads for his mission. He makes the Elimuses blind and he moves his mission forward. This should make us hopeful and courageous. God is pursuing faith in more and more people and peoples. And as we join him, he clears the way. Jesus is a seeking and saving God. He has a mission. He has straight paths. And he is still sending us and, more importantly, going with us. He's not passively maintaining or coasting. He is passionately pursuing and moving and saving. And he calls us to join him. But there's two questions that we need to reckon with in all of this. They are, is Jesus worthy And is he enough for you? Is he worthy? And is he enough for you? Is he worthy of your devotion? Is he worthy of your fasting and your prayers and your commitment to his mission? Because this is why we do what we do, why we be Christian. I mean, we fast out of the hunger for his glory that supersedes our hunger for food. And we pray biblical Jesus-style prayers only through the shared belief with God that his glory is the ultimate good in the universe. And we go and we send and we give to take the gospel to the nations because we believe that Jesus alone is worthy of all their glory. And we long for ourselves and for others to see and rejoice in the glory of Jesus. Andrew Peterson has written one of my favorite songs of all time. Go home and listen to it if you haven't already. It's called, Is He Worthy? And I'll resist the urge to like sing it to you, but I'll just read you a portion. It, it, it references Revelation 5. He says, Is anyone worthy? 
Is anyone whole? Is anyone able to break the seal and open the scroll? The Lion of Judah, who conquered the grave. He is David's root and the Lamb who died to ransom the slave from every people and tribe, every nation and tongue. He has made us a kingdom and priest to God to reign with the Son. Is he worthy? Is he worthy of all blessing and honor and glory? Is he worthy of this? He is. He is. But is he enough for you? That's the second question you need to reckon with. It's the question I had to reckon with myself when I was considering moving from Nashville back here to serve and lead at Bethel. It was a very difficult decision, honestly. Audrey and I, we had come to love our life in Nashville very much. We loved our friends. We had some really incredible friends. We loved them dearly. We loved our home. We loved the memories that we had made there. Audrey had a thriving business there. We loved our neighborhood and our city that had all the opportunities and possibilities it held for us. It seemed at times an overwhelming prospect to give it all up. But when we stepped back and we tried to evaluate the situation from God's perspective, It seemed that our will was leading us to Nashville and God's will was leading us here. And we had to decide if we were going to conform to his will. And the main question we asked was, if we give all this up, is Jesus enough for us? Is Jesus sufficient to satisfy us? Because if not, then we've made Nashville an idol. And if I'm being honest, even though many of our reasons for loving Nashville were honorable, I think, I I believe that in some ways we had made Nashville an idol. Put it in the place of God in some aspects in our life. But you don't have to be perfect to follow God's purposes for your life. You just have to be willing and open. And we came to the point where we said, we believe, Lord, help our unbelief. We want to live like you are enough for us because we believe you are. And it's been hard at times as God is slowly but surely delivering us out of our idolatry and into the joy of his mission. But he has done that. He is doing that. The joy, bringing us into the joy of leaning on him and knowing that we are where we're supposed to be and living for someone bigger and greater than ourselves. And he is so faithful and good and gracious with us. I'm telling you, Christ is enough. He's worthy. He is worthy. And I'm so grateful that he led me in his straight path and gave me the grace to be used like Antioch rather than Jerusalem, through my devotion rather than despite my disengagement. And I pray that for each and every one of you too. That you will see that he is worthy of your whole life and devotion. That he is not only that, but that he is sufficient to be the center of your life. That he is enough for you. Give him your everything. As a church, let's give him our everything. Let's hunger for his spirit to lead us like the church at Antioch. Let's repent of using his name without following him. And let's follow him. Praying as we go that God will remove the Elimuses from his straight paths and greatly glorify his name through us.
Let's pray. Our Father in heaven, accomplish your will among us and bring your kingdom here as it is in heaven. Holy Spirit, we hunger for your presence and power to lead us through our devotion in the straight paths that you have prepared, even using the alimuses in our paths for your glory. Oh, Jesus, give us grace to lean on you and to see you as the deeply soul-satisfying person that you are. Help us love you and trust you more completely as we walk in faith. Don't let us be people who use your name without following you. And Lord, allow us to play a part in your grand purposes for your world. It's only in and through you, Lord, that we pray. Amen.